Uh, we are going to be looking at verses 5 to 11 from Romans 8 this morning. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Amen. <clears throat> On one of the legs of our recent trip to Thailand, we flew out on an Airbus A380. And some of us were like excited little boys at the prospect of uh, being on this plane because we were going to be flying on the world's largest passenger aircraft, a double-decked, wide-bodied, super-quiet aircraft. Uh, there are three classes of passenger uh, on the, the plane we were, of course, in economy uh, class. But the level of refinement, even in that class, was way above the, the normal standard. There was loads of legroom, and every other aspect was superior to other aircraft. And at the heart of this revolutionary uh, aeroplane were four enormous uh, engines, uh, two different kinds of engines, one of them uh, being a Rolls-Royce Trent engines, which were both powerful enough to lift this massive plane uh, off the ground, but also powerful enough to make it one of the quietest uh, of flying experiences. The engines make the difference. And the engines uh, require that air, uh, airports who are going to use the, the Airbus A380 have to have modifications to their facilities. It's a completely new way of flying. Well, what Rolls-Royce Trent engines are to the Airbus, the Holy Spirit is to the Christian. And as we're going to see this morning, the Spirit not only brings new power to a life, but an entirely new way of looking at reality, an entirely new mindset. The main theme of Romans 8 is our security as Christians because of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's ministry. Uh, we've learned from uh, Romans 7 verse 13 to the end of the chapter that uh, just because we've become Christians, uh, we don't uh, have a, a cessation of Hostilities. There's not an end to our struggles. In many ways, our struggles become more intense. We're faced with the opposition of Satan and the, the, the continuing sinfulness of our nature. 
So the question arises, how in the world is a believer to have assurance in that uh, situation of struggle? How are we to know that all is well with us and that we will arrive in glory at the end? And the Apostle answers that in the first four verses of the, the, the great chapter that we're looking at. He says that the, the, sin, the struggle that we have with the, the flesh or the sinful nature is not the whole story. We are not the ones who are alone fighting the sinful nature. There's a new principle. There are new mighty engines within the Christian's life. <clears throat> there is the principle of the spirit, the spirit of life who is now at work in our lives. And because of that, the, spirit, the believer is able to be assured and comforted and encouraged, uh, even in the midst of struggle, and perhaps especially in the midst of our struggle. Now verse 4, uh, where we ended last time, says that the just requirements of the law can be filled in us believers as we don't live by the flesh or the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. And so there's a, a contrast being set up, living by the sinful nature of the flesh or by the Spirit. And Paul is now continuing, uh, in the verses that we're looking at this morning, to consider this contrast between two kinds of people. People who are controlled by the sinful nature and people who are controlled by the Spirit. And essentially, he says, there's a, a, a mindset change. People who are controlled by the sinful nature have a certain mindset, a view of the world, themselves, and reality. People who are controlled by the Spirit have a different mindset. And the two mindsets result in, in, in different uh, consequences. Uh, if you're controlled by the sinful nature and have your mindset in what the sinful nature desires, then the consequence is... Uh, enmity with God, disobedience to God, uh, death, lack of peace. If, however, you are controlled by the Spirit, the consequences are different. You uh, know life and peace, and you are ready and eager to obey the living God. Now, we're going to get into the verses, but at the outset, notice this. There are only two sets of people. In the whole world, there are only, really, two kinds of people. There are those who are controlled by the sinful nature, and there are those who are controlled by the Spirit. I say two, there are not three. And sometimes people uh, speak in terms of the carnal Christian. We've, we've used that term before. And it suggests that there is somehow an economy class, if we can use the, the airline uh, metaphor again, an economy class Christian and a business class Christian. And if you're in the business class, you've had a, a second experience uh, that you are at the beginning a sheep. And all Christians are sheep, but then you move up to being a disciple. You mean business. And that's a wrong teaching because it suggests that we can keep our sin and go to heaven. And there are only two categories that the Bible knows, that there are those who are under the influence of the Holy Spirit and there are those who are under the influence of the sinful nature. Paul doesn't talk about Christians and non-Christians. Uh, he uses the 
two types of people as to whether they are controlled or live according to the flesh, and that's the literal rendering of sinful nature, the flesh or the spirit. Uh, flesh doesn't mean the, the kind of spongy material that we have around our bones, <coughs> which we have maybe less of that kind of material around us, but it means our lives as under the control of sin, dominated by sin. Uh, to be merely sinful, to be merely in the flesh, means uh, that there's no opposing work of the Holy Spirit. It means someone who's not been born again, someone who's dominated by that fallen nature that is pulling them away from God all the time. So let's look at um, the first of the the, the two categories that Paul is contrasting. Uh, Those who are in the flesh, and then we'll look at those who are in the spirit. What does he say about those who are in the flesh? (coughs) Well, the description that Paul makes of people who are uh, living in the sinful nature is interesting because we might have expected him to flag up uh, certain lurid sins, you know, promiscuity, um, uh, drunkenness, whatever. But although these are the fruit of living by the sinful nature, that's not how Paul categorizes in the beginning those who are in sin. He speaks, first of all, about a certain mindset. Uh, he, he says that those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. So we're talking, first of all, about a, a certain, what we could call, worldview, a way of looking at uh, life. And the non-Christian, or the person who is controlled by the sinful nature, uh, looks at the world around him, and his thoughts, her interests, his desires, her purposes are focused on this life and on his interests and on the short term. He doesn't look at the things of this life from the standpoint of God's glory or his neighbor's good. Essentially, it's a self-centered worldview. They're pursuing their own agenda. They're living in a world without regard to the one true and living God. Now, that, you'll understand, that description embraces all kinds of people apart from God. Not just those who have a rock and roll lifestyle, you know, who've lived for uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll. It includes people who are very respectable, who live for the opera uh, whose, whose greatest vice is perhaps an addiction to classical music. Or it includes people who are, are, are so keen to be outwardly respectable that they'll be found in church uh, every Sunday. Uh, but ultimately, they're focused upon their appearance and what people think of them rather than upon God. They, in their day-to-day living, uh, have a mindset that excludes pleasing God. So, The mindset is one which is lived apart from God, where they are at the centre of their world. And Paul says that people without the Spirit are marked by death. That the mind of the Spirit, or the the mind of the sinful man, verse 6, is death. 
What does that mean? The mind of the sinful man is death. He's speaking here about uh, the mind. Physically, of course, we're dying from the, the, the moment we're born. But he's saying that uh, our, our mind, our understanding is death. Uh, before the Spirit of God comes into a life, we don't understand the things of God. Uh, we, we don't see. We don't get it. The penny doesn't drop in terms of spiritual things. For example, uh, we can be in church and uh, the person next to us is, is singing the hymn and is just enraptured at the, 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 the wonder of praising God. And that person who's not a Christian is totally unmoved. Someone is spoken to powerfully in a sermon. Someone in whose life the Spirit of God is not at work is completely switched off. There is no impact, no point of contact. They are as dead as a corpse in regard to the things of God. There's no connection. There's no contact. No flicker of life. And I think when you take that and multiply it into a culture, you arrive at a culture that's orientated around death. Now, that plays itself out in a number of ways. Think of the way that that abortion and euthanasia have become so increasingly acceptable in our country. Sometimes I think we're guilty in the, the, the British church of dismissing a concern for abortion as an American thing. And it has to be said, sometimes Americans don't, American Christians don't see far beyond that specific ethical issue. But, however, it's something that we have largely overlooked in our country. And it's accepted uh, right through the culture. It's a recent example, uh, for example, of the, the pro-life group that wanted to affiliate to Strathclyde University Students' Union... And they were turned down. They were told that they couldn't uh, join the union. And the reason that was given by the association was allowing an anti-choice group. Notice the the very emotive uh, use of language. Anti-choice group to form would be a barrier to freedom, equality and body autonomy for those without uteruses on campus. Watch a clip of uh, a woman that was speaking at... uh, Again, to use the language, pro-choice rally, campaigning for abortion rights in, the, uh, in, in America recently. And she was testifying that she had had an abortion uh, when she was younger because the only choices that she had been given were uh, either to, to have the child and rear the child herself or to have the child and uh, have it put up for adoption. And she wasn't willing to be faced with just these two choices and she felt uh, completely affirmed by the rally that she had made the right choice. She had chosen uh, to have freedom. Nick Robinson, the Radio 4 presenter, wrote a tribute to a colleague who had died uh, recently, uh, Steve uh, Hewlett. And the tribute that he wrote in kind of poetic form was, was regarded as, as moving and poignant but actually at another level it expresses the, the embrace of death 
uh, that there is in society. There is, he wrote, no virtue in survival, certainly no lack of it in death. I lived, you now know that you will not. Luck, chance, fate, nothing more, nothing less. That makes me shudder, that uh, diminishing of the difference between life and death. A death-embracing culture, because the mind controlled by the sinful nature is death. The mind controlled by the sinful nature, thirdly, is hostile to God. You see, it's not just that uh, a non-Christian person is dead and insensitive to God. The non-Christian person, the Bible consistently teaches, is hostile to God, is opposed to God. Now, you hear many people say that that's not true. He says, I'm not really bothered about religion. I don't care. Uh, I'm quite indifferent. I've got nothing against religion or religious peoples. I've got nothing against God. Well, uh, they may seek to convince themselves that that's the case, but the biblical testimony is one of being at enmity in our minds against God. Why is that? Because in sin, we resent the fact that God is holy. God is so different from us. Because he is holy, we know he will judge us. We come under his threat. We resent the fact that God knows all about us. He is omniscient. Uh, There's nothing that can be hidden from his gaze. We hate that. We want to keep God out. We hate the fact that God is judged, that he will bring all things to account at the last day. There's no one who's indifferent to God. And sometimes uh, this hostility uh, erupts into uh, outbreaks of, of anger against the God they don't believe exists. <clears throat> In the 1990s, there was a, a TV game show called uh, Can't Cook, Won't Cook. And the, the idea behind it was that uh, you had one person who, who, who couldn't cook at all and somebody else uh, who wouldn't cook. And they were both uh, tutored by, uh, by people uh, who were master chefs. And then the, the end product was judged. As far as the mind of the sinful nature is concerned, uh, it's a case of can't obey, won't obey. We are unwilling to obey, first of all. We will not obey the law of God. And this is how our, our enmity with God is shown. It's an unwillingness to do what we know God would want us to do. We resent his rule and we will do it our way. And so when God calls us to, to purity before marriage, people say, no, I'll live as I, I like. I'll sleep around with whomever I wish to. I'll organize my life according to my own uh, tastes and, and, uh, and dictates. Uh, we see the same, of course, in, in the, the life issues. I will do what gives me my own personal freedom. And the enmity against God uh, shown as an unwillingness to uh, obey God's commandments, God's laws, arises from an inability to do the same. Uh, <coughs> we, by nature, uh, are, are constituted to go the way of sin. We have freedom to obey God, but we simply won't do it until the Spirit of God comes and changes our hearts. 
Spurgeon once used the illustration of, of a lion. Uh, a lion, a hungry lion, can be placed in a cage along with a, a bale of hay and bag of oats. The lion won't uh, eat the, the hay or the oats because that's not what lions do. The lion is a carnivore. It'll eat flesh. And sinful people uh, don't obey God. Uh, they, they can't obey God. They won't obey God. They are at enmity with God. And finally, the sinful mind... Paul says, cannot please God. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Uh, People think, uh, hopefully, that they'll do enough at the end to get into heaven. Happy enough to to sneak in, to just scrape by, as it were. Paul says, so long as we're not believing, we can't please God in any way. Because even the best things that we do, uh, they have got all these wrong motives mixed in with them. Uh, so even the, the, the best deeds that we do for charity, for example, are often done uh, with an eye to our self-esteem or with an eye to what people will think of us uh, rather than being done as an offering to God. And it's only insofar as we do things uh, as a response to God to God's praise and glory, that something is, in God's terms, classed as good. The man or woman, the boy or girl, controlled by the sinful nature, cannot please God. Well, what about the other side? The contrast that Paul makes is with somebody who lives by the Spirit, who is in the Spirit. And it's a complete contrast. Again, the mind is key here. The the mindset of the person under the Spirit is a mindset controlled by the Spirit. Every aspect is controlled by the Spirit. Our thinking, our willing, our desiring reflect the Spirit's work. The person controlled by the Spirit has his mind set on what the Spirit desires. Verse 5. That doesn't mean now, just to avoid confusion, that doesn't mean that somebody who's a Christian is somebody who has taken up uh, thinking about religious things. Somebody who's got interested in the church, for example. You come across that some, sometimes. Somebody uh, who's, who's clearly not been born again uh, takes up an interest in, I don't know, the history of the Presbyterian Church or uh, shows an interest in, in what's been going on in a local congregation or even an academic interest in the Bible. And there are plenty of people who have an intellectual interest in the Bible. And that's not what uh, is being referred to here. The, the mindset controlled by the Spirit is different from that uh, detached intellectual interest in the Bible. Notice that the, the Spirit, and this is, if you like, a digression at this point. The Spirit is referred to in, in different ways. Um, you may have noticed that as we read through. Verse 9, he's referred to as the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Okay, in the same verse. Uh, and in the first case, the Spirit of God clearly means the Spirit of the Father. Because in verse 11, he's referred to as the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. And 
the member of the Trinity who raises Christ is, is uniformly the Father. So that's referring to the Spirit of the Father. But at the same time, it's the Spirit of Christ. So you have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of Christ. That's not confusing the members of the Trinity, but what that's teaching us is that the, the members of the Trinity differ in being different persons and having different relations, but they're one in essence, they have that unity of essence and of will, so that what one does, the other can be said to do also. Okay, so when a child tells a parent, for example, I prayed to God and Jesus has come into my heart. That's not confused thinking, that's biblical reality. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ and unites us to Christ. We can speak of the Spirit dwelling in us. We can also speak of the believer dwelling in Christ or believing into Christ. So, when we're Christians, we have a new mindset. It's controlled by the Spirit. And we think the things that the Spirit approves. Paul says, secondly, that although that person's body is dead, his spirit is alive. Your body is dead because of sin. Sin robs us of spiritual life, uh, makes us unresponsive to sin. Uh, your body, your physical body is dying, cells are decaying. But when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's uh, being, life comes. Before we're spiritually dead, we're, we're like a corpse. We're unresponsive to the gospel. We don't understand it. We can't respond to it. But when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, when the, the, the Holy Spirit's ministry begins in someone's life, they begin to understand the gospel. The testimony all around us uh, begins to make sense. This, this world in all its perfection and all its intricate balance uh, is seen clearly as pointing us to the Savior. We hear the, the, the gospel <coughs> preached and we understand that we need a Savior. Uh, Jesus becomes something utterly desirable to us. He's not just some remote a historical figure, but he is the saviour that we need to save us from our sin. And God then gifts us faith to respond. You see, in ourselves, we, we are dead in sin. We, we lack even the capacity to believe. That's why Paul in Ephesians tells us that uh, faith itself is, is, is not from ourselves, it's a gift of God. And God enables us to believe. Life, as it were, surges through our being. And we're able to, to trust in the Lord Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And you know, especially if you're relatively new as a Christian, how the world looks so different when the Spirit comes into our life. Everything around us is seen through new eyes. We're going to sing about that at the end tonight. Uh, everything that we once took for granted that we thought unremarkable suddenly glows with a new intensity of life the spirit opens our eyes to the beauty of God and his creation 
The last contrast is one that lies ahead. The unbeliever is orientated towards death, but we are directed, we are orientated towards life. This body that we're living in is decaying. It's collapsing day by day. One day we will die. But those who are in the Spirit, those who are controlled by the Spirit, those who are Christians, who are born again, are eagerly anticipating the renewal of all things, including their bodies. Right now, our spirits are alive because of righteousness, whilst our bodies are dying. One day, body and spirit will be fully and gloriously alive in a new heaven and earth that will shine with the light and the life of Christ. What a glorious hope that the Spirit gives us. That's why Paul is going to be shortly speaking about uh, the resurrection hope, uh, the groaning that there is within us for the renewal of all things. That's being placed in you by the Holy Spirit. That certainty that there is a great future ahead. Let's apply this now to our hearts as we, as we conclude. Uh, the big question, of course, that a contrast like this uh, sets up before us is the question, are you in the flesh or in the spirit? There are only these two categories. Uh, if you're still in the flesh, if you're still minding the things of the sinful nature, then you must take this into account. There is no effort on your part. There is nothing that you can do which will please God and make God, persuade God to allow you into his presence. You cannot please God whilst you are in the sinful nature. You are morally unable. You are religiously at enmity with God. Even though you're in church this morning, that's the deep reality if you're not in the Spirit. And you need to hear the gospel call this morning. You need to respond in faith, a faith that only God, the Holy Spirit, will grant. And as you respond in faith, it is only by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the remarkable fact. God speaks to the dead. Lazarus is the great example of this. Jesus speaks to Lazarus, who's been dead in the grave. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, the dead man, hears and comes. Whenever the gospel invitation is given, it's given to people who are dead in their sin. And God brings life and response and you're called, if you're not a Christian, you're called to believe this morning. To believe in Jesus, whose work on the cross makes you right with God. And if you do that, then let someone know that you are trusting in the Lord. Confess your faith in Jesus. And if you have done that, and yet you're saying this morning, my, my problem is the struggle with sin the ongoing struggle. Uh, and you know, we're often tempted, uh, in, certainly in the wider church, 
by the notion that there's a cure-all, there's a silver bullet uh, for our struggle. And people will say, well, what, you, you, you're a Christian, but you need the Spirit. You know, you, you've received Christ, you're a sheep, but you need to become a disciple. You need that, uh, you need the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You need a second blessing. There's a whole multiplicity of ways of, of talking about it. But Paul makes it clear that if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit. If anyone uh, is, does not have the Spirit, he is, he is not in Christ. Verse 9. Paul doesn't recognize a second stage of life in the Spirit that we need to go for. We need to be renewed in the Spirit continually, uh, filled in the Spirit continually. But if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit, verse 9, the Spirit already is living in you, verse 11, and thus you are controlled by the Spirit, verse 9. These are bread and butter, ABC, definitions of the Christian. And what we're called to do is we're called to be what we are. A new creation controlled by the Spirit. The assurance that, that we have in this chapter is that our justification and our sanctification is uh, always down to what God has done. He justified you through the substitution of Christ in your place. He is working in you. Uh, to make you pleasing to him through the resurrection power of the Spirit. Um, what you don't need is a new experience to take you on to uh, business class in the Christian life. What you need is a daily repenting, as we were saying the last time. A turning from here to there, a turning from sin to Christ. And the teaching this morning is that is primarily something which belongs to our mind. It belongs to our thinking. And the struggle is to, to leave behind uh, the, the things which feed our minds, from the sin, feed the sinful nature through the mind, rather. Uh, to turn away from the things that, that we, we look at, that we read, that we study, that we listen to, that drag us away from Christ. And increasingly receive those things <coughs> which are pleasing to God. Turning from Sin, I turn to Christ. What is God pointing at in your life this morning? What do you need to turn from decisively? Repenting always begins with a first step. What is that thing that God's Spirit is putting his finger on this morning and saying, Leave this behind and turn with your heart and soul and mind and strength to my son Jesus. May God grant us light and obedience to obey that light. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder of being brought into the realm of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the, the deep reality that he comes and brings life and light, brings a new understanding, a new awareness, a new sense of things. Lord, may we be increasingly sensitive to his promptings. And may we seek to uh, be renewed through the renewal of our minds. That what we think and will, as well as do and say, 
might be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.